Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. In that, everybody says spray the alcohol. What I learned is you don't spray it, you flood the area. So it's the easiest way to fix your, your breathables is you'll notice on your, your pants where there's a wet spot. Turn the waders inside out. Go to the corresponding spot on, on the wet spot on your pants to the waders. Flood that with alcohol. And just start moving that little puddle of alcohol around. All of a sudden, that alcohol will hit the broken ends of your Gore-Tex and turn it black. Sometimes I'll take a little Sharpie and mark it. A lot of times it'll just stay black, and I'll just dry that off. The alcohol just prepped here. It's nice and clean. Then put a tiny little dab of AquaSeal over it. That was JPEG with a reminder of the alcohol tip for finding and patching your old waders. Top New York Steelhead Rivers, Lake Erie Browns, and Swinging with Indicators today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. The Stonefly Net Custom Build-Out bonus ends next week. This is Ethan's chance to give back to our community, to one lucky winner. This custom build-out is, uh, is going to be amazing. One person who wins this is going to uh, get Ethan to walk him through a unique custom build-out, and you're going to get a net that fits exactly to your needs. Head over to wetflyswing.com giveaway right now. G-I-V-I... A-W-A-Y. That rhymes. And uh, and also just head over to Stonefly and say hi to Ethan if you haven't checked in with him. He's got some beautiful landing nets. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between. Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. Today's episode is sponsored by Daiichi Fishing Hooks, a leader in the fly fishing industry and still the world's sharpest hook. Tempered with carbon-rich steel, Daiichi offers superior penetration without compromising the hook's structural integrity. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com Daiichi and check out what they have going and check out these killer hooks. That's Daiichi, D-A-I-I-C-H-I. JPEC is here to walk us through New York and some of the rivers he guides and fishes. We discover what his egg setup looks like and how he fishes it. Some tips for handling your line and uh, and fishing on the water. And an overall primer to fish, one of the great states in the Union. Get ready to put the feed bags on and actually find out what this really means. Here we go, JPEC from jpecguides.com. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing well. Good, good. Thanks for coming on the show to dig into uh, New York, uh, another great state, and uh, lots of fishing action, both uh, kind of steelhead, salmon, trout, a little bit of everything. We're going to talk about that, what you do on your guiding up there, and uh, dig into probably some of your YouTube channel and all of that. But um, maybe take us back first. How did you first get into fly fishing? Start us there, and then we'll jump into your guiding. Oh, God. I was a young teenager playing on the farm ponds, and... Uh, from Fly Fisherman Magazine, some other things, it just, the whole thing just intrigued me. And from there, it just started playing on farm pond, playing with a friend of mine in the um, foothills of the Adirondacks with brook trout and, and just going from there, then being introduced as a 16 year old to tributary fishing and then slowly figure that out. Right on. Did you grow up in New York? Yes, I did. I grew up on a dairy farm in, in um, Western New York, central New York. Gotcha. And today you're guiding in New York. When did the guiding, you know, that idea come to be? Uh, boy, originally I was known as um, some of the rivers in Western New York. I was known as the local expert. And it started out as, hey, my friend's coming up. Can you help him out? And I says, yeah, sure. So it slowly evolved into that. I'm going, you know, this looks pretty good. Um, I started doing that off and on. And then I kind of called I got completely cooked in my old life. And um, kind of slid into doing it full time. Hmm. There you go. Now you're rolling full time. And 
We were just out there, well, just this last year fishing for steelhead in Ohio. We didn't quite make it over to New York, but we were in PA in that area. What are some of the rivers, if we were going to be heading over there in, you know, in December, what were some of the rivers you'd be fishing during that period in New York? Yeah, in December, a lot of that has to do because we got a lot of smaller creeks that could ice up quick, and we had some creeks that stay open. So without burning spots and mentioning some more popular waters, like Oak Orchard has a tendency to stay open. And that's a great river during the winter if we have freeze and thaws. That means the water comes up, gets high, gets dirty, and drops. So we get a little pulses, and that keeps that juvenile. That can be a good um, winter river right there. Uh, Genesee River in Rochester, uh, if we're having a really dry winter, not like this winter, we're having a lot of wet, that can be an amazing steelhead river. That When that place is on, it's probably the hottest steelhead river in the Great Lakes. Uh, of course, everybody knows the Salmon River. And then north of there, you have some smaller um, creeks that all fish well, depending on ice and water flows. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of stuff depending, and that was kind of how it was when we were in Ohio. We were kind of chasing based on what was going on with the flows that day, right? The weather, you kind of go to the rivers that are that are in shape, right? Is that kind of how you work it there? That's exactly how we work it. Yeah, that's exactly how we work it. We'll quite often um, take a look at like, okay, this watershed's fishing good. This one's fishing good. This one's iced up. This one's really low. This one's just terribly crowded. We'll go here, here, and here. So we'll base our decisions on that. A lot of times we're guiding. That could be a game day decision. Do you focus most of your time around uh, Lake Ontario? Is that kind of what you're doing throughout the year? Yeah, I do. I focus my, my tributary fishing right around Lake Ontario. You know, I could run over to um, Lake Erie, but, you know. No reason to. Yeah. There's a certain point where you just got to, you're trying to keep track of too much and stay on top of too much. Where you just got to kind of narrow down your your options that you can do really well with. So what we've did, you know, decide, all right, we're just going to stay in the lake tribs. We got the infrastructure. We can move around. And um, so, yeah, so that's what I do. Amazing. Yeah, it's a pretty, the, all the areas of, you know, the mid or not the Midwest, but just the Great Lakes are, you know, it's pretty cool. I mean, there's so much going on, right? I mean, you got Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, Niagara Falls in between, Buffalo, all these famous places. Yep. Well, what does it feel like for you growing up? Does everything feel kind of like it's just, it's just the way it is, so it's not that big of a deal? Or are you blown away by living there in kind of New York? Well, I've had a chance to travel a little bit and pretty impressed with our opportunities. You know, you would think that with New York that we can fish year round. And, you know, where I am located right at the moment, I've got within an hour's drive, three, four tributaries. And within 20 minutes from where I'm sitting right now, I got a classic spring creek that's open year round. Right. Just for brout, like trout? Yeah. Yeah. Regular trout fishing. I could, I think I could set the phone down in 30 minutes. I could be in the water fishing midges and scuds. There you go. That's right, because you're close. You're kind of, what town are you in? Where do you live at? Well, I live just west of Rochester, his home base. Okay. Yeah, so you're right yep. right smack dab in the middle of kind of Lake Ontario. And then if you, so you could kind of go up north, northeast and get into that part of New York that's kind of more, how's that different as you get away from Lake Ontario? Are there plenty of opportunities up there to do some fishing? Yeah, you get into, let's say, the Tug Hill Plateau. You get into the Adirondacks. It's a brook trout fish. And it can be touchy. I mean, some water is very good. Some water is just not. And uh, But, yeah, um, just south of Rochester, I got a really good freestone um, trout stream. Within two hours, I got a, I got the um, headwaters of Genesee. It's a stock stream. It's probably the nicest brown trout or dry fly water I've ever fished. And great hatches, great dry fly opportunities. Um, you go, uh, but like I said, twin is where I'm sitting. I got a spring creek and I got a freestone trout stream. You got it all. Yeah, and it'll rival the beaver kill. Oh, really? There you go. So the beaver kill, yeah. and describe, now where is the beaver kill from Rochester? Um, That's in the Catskills. That's about a four and a half hour drive. Just east? Yep. We have pretty much all the same hatches that the beaver kill will have, except for probably green drakes um, on that stream. Yeah, that's great. That's what you realize when you start to break it out. And I mean, I think the whole country is, there's places, right? But this is especially true because there's just so many, you got the lakes, and then you do have the trout fishing, right? You got both, everything covered. The one thing you do have is weather occasionally, right? It couldn't get cold, but it seems like, does it seem like we're getting some pretty fair climate these days for fishing? Um, this winter has been, oh, 
you would think that being that we're having an unusually warm winter so far, um, we've had a couple of really bad cold snaps, but all in all, it's been very mild. The issue has been, it's been wet. So we've had to deal with a lot of high water. So for an example, um, within 24 hours of doing this podcast, the Salmon River went from 500 to 1200 CFS. And we had some high water events in my creeks over the weekend, you know, a few days ago. So we get a lot of this up and down. Now, you know, for most fishermen, you think that's, that'll be a hassle. But for tributary fishing, that's actually what we need because it keeps refreshing the fishing. So it's been pretty good, but we've had to play the, you know, the high water, low water game. Right, right, right. And and is the Salmon River, I mean, we've had some stories told about that place. Is that a place that you go to quite frequently or are you trying to hit places with less pressure throughout the year? I spent a lot of time on that river. Um, we've learned to navigate around the fishing pressure. And so we can go up there and still have some some very good experiences and not be have a line of guys as far as you can see three feet apart. We stay out of that. What's the secret there? What is the tip on trying to avoid the big crazy crowds? Don't be afraid to walk five minutes. Oh, really? So is that all it takes? Easily. But we'll head down a trail and, you know, five, ten minutes, you know, walking along the river, we're out of the chaos. There's very popular spots and there's not so popular spots. And one of the things I often say is, especially in this situation like this, the tributary fishing can get very popular and get very busy. My comment is, is I rather struggle in peace. So you could be in an area where there's a lot of fish, there'd be a lot of fishing pressure, but yet you can't maneuver, you can't move, and you can't work the water properly. But yet you go to a spot where there's not a lot of fishing pressure and not a lot of fish, and you can maneuver around and work the water and work it right, you end up doing way better. Right. That's what it is, right? So you're not going to those places where maybe they're totally stacked up, but then there's a ton of people. Go to a place with less fish, but you could still find the fish if you know how to do it. Right, right, right. And there's no shortage for understanding your water, understanding your fish, understanding the ecology you're working in. And, you know, when you come to grips with that, then all of a sudden you go into the so-called secondary, third dairy water, and you do very well. Right on. And so what are you? do you think you're kind of known for out there? It sounds like you do a little bit of everything, but is there something that you're a species you're kind of known for or something you really enjoy fishing for over above everything else? Well, personally, I'm a, I love steelhead. But what I'm known for is the fly fishing guide and the fly fisherman. And, uh, and as for the speed, not particularly, I'm just known for a whole, you know, primarily for fishing the trips is what I'm known for. Fishing the trips. Yeah. So that'd be the salmon, the steelhead, and the brown trout. All those species. Good. Well, we've we've covered steelhead quite a bit, and I think we'll probably touch on that today because that is always a hot topic for us and people listening. But brown trout is also interesting, and salmon. So if for browns, and we're talking, are we talking uh, like Lake Ontario, like Lake Run Browns? Yeah, and the tributaries, a lot of these um, Lake Run Browns, yeah. Lake Run Browns. Well, let's dig into that to start us off here because that was one that we've we've talked about browns, obviously, and but not specifically in this area. If we were coming in and we were talking to you about putting together a trip for Lake Run Browns, what would be the first step? What would you tell us? When would we be thinking about putting this together? Um, your brown trout are basically November, December fish. However, some watersheds, you might see them the last week of October. It just depends on, you know, the reality depends on if we got a lot of water, everybody's complaining that the rivers are blown out, we got high water. Yeah, they'll be up there probably the last week of October in reasonable numbers. But they kind of November into, you know, I say November until we get froze out. Gotcha. Yeah. And if you get froze out, then you're just pretty much done. You're not fishing until you get another thaw, right? Correct. Correct. And then November, December, and then, and then after that, so January, you're not really February, any of that time. You're not really hitting Browns. Typically we'll be iced up from late, um, sometime about early to mid January until, um, about now. And then we'll. We get our ice out and it blows out. And then we're generally okay because a lot of our brown trout creeks there, when they, they'll go from, you'll be fishing and everything be fine. You go out the next day and it's a big giant slushy. They go out the next morning, there's four inches of ice. You need a nice auger tip-ups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is no open water. No, no. So that's it. And, and when you're preparing for, talk about the fishing, the tackle stuff. Is it similar yep. to what you're doing for steelhead? Is it exactly the same? Is it a lot different? What's that look like? You can use your steelhead gear, you know, a lot of times um, for a one-handed rod, I say a 10-foot 7 weight works really well. Our November brown trout are not the most toughest, hard-running fish. They Basically, they, they're kind of like 
they're just overweight and out of shape. So they don't run much, but they'll just kind of bulldog, give you bad head shakes. A, a seven weight works really good. I do use a, you know, I got a little 10 and a half foot six weight with a little switch grip on it that I use quite a bit in the creeks. Uh, a little bit bigger water, I'll use a 10 foot switch rod. I'm a big um, two handed fan, so I use a lot of switch. Perfect. So you use like you like the uh, like the ten foot versus say a uh, eleven and a half foot. Um, some of our creeks, the ten foots work fine, um, just because of the size of the water. You know, it's a lot of times I'm fishing no more, maybe a twenty five foot cast. So the eleven footers just get a little bit big in some of the tighter creeks. But if I'm fishing some bigger water, then yeah, I'll go right to my eleven footers. Yeah. And what is the what if you talk about just going back two handed? that short stuff because a 10 foot seven weight single hand versus a 10 and a half foot two handed. I mean, they're different, but same. I mean, why would you go for one over the other? Cause I like to do a lot of spay casting. The more you get to 11 foot, the more spayish the casting is. And you know, that 10 to 11 foot rod length, that's all line handling control and presentation. Yeah. You know, I kind of got a saying that we can catch fish on a half a dozen different fly patterns as long as they're presented properly. Yeah, that's right. What, what do you guys, how do you present? Talk about how you present the fly properly to browns if you're swinging. Like what type of, how are you finding the fish? You know, what runs are you looking for? And then how are you presenting the fly? Well, a lot of it depends on where they are in their spawn cycle. So if they're first coming in, these fish are going to come in and they're going to come in, they're going to hit the spawning habitat and they're going to dump. So when you're in early November to probably almost into December, we fish a lot of egg patterns. Because brown trout just love to eat. I've actually walked into a riff where I've seen a dozen brown trout laid up and you know, paired spawning. And you go to the head of that riff, and they're just happily spawning away, get in the back. And after a while, they'll stop spawning, line up on a feeding line, and start eating eggs. <laughs> wow. So it's a lot of egg patterns. There's a lot of egg drifting. And the nice thing about that is a lot of sight fishing. Then as we get through the spawn, and the fish come off the spawn, they start dropping into the deeper cuts and pools and pockets. Yeah, as long as there's a lot of eggs in the system. I also got to remember, too, is when they come in November, we've already had our Chinook salmon run. So that same habitat that the browns are spawning on, the salmon have been into. So they come right on top of the salmon beds and just dig up the salmon beds. So you got all sorts of eggs going in the system. Right, right, right. So tons of eggs. And then the eggs go until December. Then what early December, are you still using egg patterns? Well, by that point, yes, we certainly are. But I'm tired of drifting eggs. So, but you get a high water ball, the river comes up, and quite often, because of that shift at bottom, that can create a very strong egg bite. But by that point, I'm swinging small streamers. Uh, some of the water that I fish, there's a lot of creek chubs in it, and those fish get into there. And those creek chubs don't like cold water, unlike the brown trout do. And so those creek chubs become very easy pickings for them. So I just kind of slow swing little zonker patterns is my favorite and, uh, and start swinging those just off the bottom nice and slow and let them hang in the current and um and start doing that and that's using my favorite way to fish right so you hit early when the browns come in november when they're spawning let's talk about your egg pattern setup and then we'll talk about swinging a little bit but so what does it look like yep. what rod are you using what does your setup look for eggs same rods that i mentioned before you know i don't change anything it just um nine foot leader nine ten foot leader and then um probably about 24 inches of tippet from the egg fly then a little couple of bb's depending on water conditions because understand you've got to get those eggs right on the bottom because that's i mean those fish will literally grub them right out of the gravel little side note i've caught some browns that were aggressively feeding and you'd see one side of the mandible of the mouth rub raw from digging them out of the gravel wow so they've got to kind of be pretty tight to the bottom because that's naturally where they are but not too tight you just want to get a nice soft drift along the bottom and uh, i use fairly short probably you know, anywhere from three to five foot drifts, depending on where I am and get and just real precise and just start picking the water apart. What type of flies are you using? Does it matter? I use a lot of um, nuclear row bugs. Oregon cheese is my favorite color. Depending on the water, sometimes anywhere from a 12 to an eight. I got a little SDS fly called an egg beater that um, pretty small because when I get, we're having a drought year or I got in a low water conditions, I like to fish about a size 12. And I can get that, and that works good for me, too. Okay. Yeah. And are you just casting these out without any sort of indicator, or do you have an indicator there? Yes and no. If I'm in the rift in the shallow water, I use no indicator. I believe that actually hurts you. And then when I get up, if I'm fishing the deeper water and the deeper pockets, I go to an indicator. I kind of refer to them as drift management devices. So that way I can, because I'm fishing a lot of creeks, 
you got to get a fly down a certain slot in a certain cut. And by using the indicator, I can control my drift. One of the creeks I fish is pretty dirty. So I got to get that fly up, kind of help keep it out of the weeds and keep it clean. And so I use an indicator often to help control the depth, get the fly where I need it and be really precise. Little side note, going to swinging, I'll use the same rig because, you know, sink tips generally don't work too well in the smaller water. So, and I'm back in those tight little slots and I've been known to put an indicator on and help control the swing and the depth. Right. Nice thing about an indicator swing is you can get that fly to come vertically up through the water instead of much more and less of a horizontal swing. So you can have that fly rise up in front of them. And the nice thing about doing that is, is you can get a cleaner drift. You're not banging on the bottom. It's a little softer. And these fish are hunting minnows. So watching a minnow rise up in front of them is a natural look to them that they're used to seeing. All right. Wow. So you're using the same setup. So you'd be using... Basically, your nymphing rig set up, and you can just yep. put on a different fly, put on a, a streamer, and swing it just downstream or whatever, out and across. Exactly. It's all in line handling. That's it. So, and do you get into a situation where you're adding using sinking lines and skagit and stuff like that on your spay? Yeah. Generally, I, I set up a lot of my rods with, with some sort of a skagit because they just, they, nice thing about a skagit, besides being easy to cast, you can do a lot of close range um, fishing. And then when I get to bigger water, and the water starts getting bigger, I get out of the creeks and I get into some of the smaller rivers and so on like that. Yeah, I'm going right to sink tips. Sink tips, yep. So you're using, are you using the Skagit line with the, like the indicator setup? Yeah, what I do is I'll set the, yeah, obviously a Skagit driver. And of course you Skagit, I call the Skagit head the line itself a driver. So you put the Skagit, that Skagit head on. And then remember, Skagits are meant to be ran with tips. Yeah. So what I do is put a floating tip on, then I put my regular um, nine foot, ten foot leader on a full floating system, and then that'd be my nymphing rig, egg fishing rig. Then if I get into bigger water, what's nice is is so I'm fishing nymphs and so on like that. And then I get into some bigger water, I can stand right there, reach into my shirt pocket, pull out a, the right tip for that spot, put the tip on, and then run about a a uh, four foot, five foot leader off in that, and then start running my um, streamers, wet flies or whatever, right off. The I can literally make that, that shift standing right in the river within a. Yeah. Do it in the water. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And what would be a typical tip range you would use, or is there a specific tip you like to use? Well, obviously I'm going to adjust to that particular piece of water at that particular time. So usually what I carry with me is couple poly leaders like a three nine a five and a seven and then I'll, i'm a big fan of the uh, real mo tips so i carry like a, a t11 or excuse me a t8 a t11 and a t14 just put all that into a ziploc bag and shove it in my pocket and go yep so you got to cover depending on what you need and then yeah. and the skagit is that a rio or what's the skagit line you use um use it whatever I get my hands on i'm using both rios and airflows and airflows cool yeah, yeah, and it's just usually it's I got to you can look at all my rods in there. I'll have a half a dozen rods in the truck, and there'll be you know two or three different lines on which usually whatever is available to me. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting. So the, I like the the indicator swinging because it's like you're doing two things, right? When you're when you're doing that, are you finding that um, so you're indicator fishing? I mean, are you doing that while the fish are kind of hitting eggs and then trying streamers, or is this something where you're hitting doing that later in the season? All right, so let's say this time of the year right now being, I plan on fishing tomorrow. So probably what I'll do is I'll go into a run um, where the wintering browns are, and I'll go through it with a streamer rig and just work the indicator to keep it where I want and swing through that. And once I fish through that a little bit, I'll come back and I'll shift over and I'll put on an egg fly and then I'll refish it. Because a lot of these waters right now will have both brown trout and steelhead. And sometimes we'll take a swing and fly this time of year, sometimes not. So I'll, chances are I'll pick the steelhead up. And if any um, browns are just not that active, sometimes they'll respond to an egg bite, an egg fly a little bit better. So it's kind of like a follow-up. Right, right. And then you might go to eventually getting into tips after that. And if I get into some bigger water, let's say if I go to another river that's a little bit bigger there and I want to run through some of those pools, I might put a tip on and make it a little easier on me. Right, right. Okay. And so it sounds like during that, I mean, when is the best time if you wanted to have a chance to hit swinging out there, hitting a steelhead or a brown on, say, just swinging it? Is there a better time of the year to do that? It's all on water temperature. 
you know, it's one of the things is, is this time, in, you know, a lot of people are not used to the Great Lakes. We, we're fishing some brutally cold water. Um, I've had water temperatures where I could barely get 31 degrees on a thermometer and it was still. And the only reason why we're picking a lot of the brown trout up on a swing is because they're actively feeding. And a lot of these still have to kind of come in here in that cold water. Can you get them on a swing? Absolutely. Are your odds good? No. So basically, it'll be more towards late winter, early spring. We're starting to get a little bump in the water temperature. Then we can do both on a swing. Yeah, late winter, early spring. Okay. And what does, when you look at the you know, browns, steelhead, and even adding salmon to it, which one out of those three is the easiest to catch, do you think, in the prime time, in the right time? In the right time, post-spawn drop back steelhead, like I do in um, early and mid-May, uh, we call that swing season. Okay. I mean, those we got 55-degree water temperatures, so their metabolic rate, they're on full throttle. They haven't eaten in a while. They got the feed bag on. And I swear some of those fish are go 15, 20 feet to run down the fly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's right. They're When they're active, I mean, that's a cool thing is that even in the December, they're pretty active. But come May, they're super active. Yeah, yeah. You know, water temperatures are right. Meta, you know, they're just looking for food. That's great. We've done really well swinging for, um, in the fall, swinging for salmon in mid-September to um, early October. Like for Chinook? For Chinooks, yeah. We've done very well swing. I swing a lot for Chinook salmon. Yeah, gotcha. So swinging, and you're doing similar. Well, maybe we can dig into that in a sec here. I was curious on the the feedback. I've heard that. Do you know where that comes from? I've heard that a few times. It's kind of interesting. Where does that stem from, that you know that term? The term feedback, that's from horse people put on this little bag in front of their animals. Oh, that's what that is. Yeah, that would just, yeah, they literally you would put this bag with some oats in it hanging off the halter on your horses so they can be pulling a plow or a wagon reverence and still get something and eat at the same time. That's right. That's the feedback now, and, or that's the saying. And then, yeah, because you hear it applied to fishing quite a bit and it's always kind of funny to hear. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So that's it. So we're putting the feed bags on and, um, and so for salmon, what does that look like when you're swinging for salmon? Is that very similar to swinging for steelhead or browns? Yeah, we'll use... Yeah, kind of. With, with salmon, we got to be a little tighter to the bottom. Where steelhead and browns will go vertically through the water column to chase a fly. Chinooks won't. They'll go horizontally for them. But rarely will they come up to intercept the fly. Um, that's not to say that, well, not rarely. It, it, it's not quite common. Because we've had some incredible violent eats where I know they've had to rise up after it. But morally, it's chinooks are kind of in your face. So we kind of stay probably near the bottom, not on the bottom. We want to be up off the bottom. And we want that fly to be slow. Let it swing very slow. Let it come across. Just slow that swing down. Let that fly hang in the water. Let them look at it. Let them watch it. Let them think about it. Is it ever stopping in front of them? No, because it's kind of hard to stop the fly in front of them. Once you stop it, that current gets on that line and causes the fly to lift. And uh, But I, we just found that we just kind of, you know, we're fishing within about a foot off the bottom or try to like i said i want a clean swing through uh, but i don't want the i don't want it dragging so we get a clean swing through there we kind of try to get it to hang in the current as it comes across nice and slow a lot of movement on the fly and just start covering water after a while you find a fish that just can't put up with it and the grabs can be anywhere some it stopped you lift all hell breaks loose to um don't be hanging on the fly line because they could actually grab and turn on it and you know just i've had some amazing eats right talk about the size a little bit on those fish what would be like an average and then what would be a really big chinook average size for us is around 22 24 pounds oh wow and getting big you know 28 30 um guide service record is 43 pounds yeah wow uh yeah wow on a fly yeah on a size six woolly bugger of course the woolly bugger yeah <laughs> For Chinooks, I, salmon, I use a lot of willy buggers. I mean, that's just, yeah, you just bring a box of willy buggers, you're going to be good. Okay. Weighted willy buggers, do you weight a lot of them or no? All I do is put a bead on them. Yeah. Tungsten or just a regular bead? Regular. I don't want to do The problem is, and the problem a lot of people have with salmon fishing, is they get too heavy and it gets dragged along the bottom and the salmon just ignore it and you end up pulling the hooks into their bellies. Oh, right. That's never good. So you got to be up a little bit and you kind of got to have a kind of a soft, niffy, wet fly swing to them. And they'll, when they're real grumpy, that's your best presentation. And the nice thing about a woolly bugger is we can put on the sink tip. We can do a full on aggressive swing. 
put a little bit of a strip in there if we need to, or we can get a nice soft nymphy drift with it and the fly still fish is perfect. All we do is change our presentation. Nice. What is the, when you look at the salmon, a lot of these fish you see out there are kind of darker. Do you find, are you getting fish that are coming in earlier that are chromer? Or are they just, are they most of them kind of looking darker? And then are the darker fish as active and aggressive as some other fish? Yeah, really good question uh, on the salmon. Early September, mid-September, we'll get some really nice chromers. And what I have found is, is they seem to change all at once, the whole entire population, in the river, in the lake, because one day we'll be getting all these nice shiny fish, then all of a sudden they get kind of a, they start going bronze. And they come in out of the lake that way. So it's, I think it's that strain that the New York State's working with where they all, they mature very quickly. And I think the maturing happens if they're in the river or in the lake, they just all start turning that color. Now, the aggressiveness, the strength on them doesn't change. Hmm. Where I see the change is once they start hitting spawning time, usually the first week of October. When those fish get on the spawning gravel and they start spawning, they deteriorate very quickly. So we still have had new fish coming in that are pretty bronzy, olivey looking in mid-October, let's say. And they can take very aggressively. They can fight very hard like a September fish. Well, not quite. They start to gas out a little bit sooner as our September fish. But they can still be very aggressive and they can still give you a pretty big battle. It's just that if they get, um, what I like to do with our guide service is try to get all of our salmon people done before Columbus Day weekend or right about then. We still like to be finishing up with our salmon folks. Hmm. Which is when? When is Columbus Day weekend? Uh, it's kind of like the early October. Yeah, early October, right. Yeah, um, usually right around that's usually the peak runs, but it's also about the time they go on to spawn. And so I do notice that once we get into spawning time, these fish are starting to weaken, and when they get on the spawning gravel, they deteriorate very quickly. They just go through the spawning breakdown. It's not to say that we don't go and um, stay away from the spawning gravel, st- um, stay into some of the, but that we can still get some great fish. It's just that we got to be a little bit more selective of where we fish and so on. Mm-hmm. So you're still fishing around those fish, so there's still some fish. Well, there's other fish, right? There's steelhead, there's browns that are around. Yeah, the steelhead are starting to come in, but it's still not to say we can't find some great salmon. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro-nymph reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without the shoulder burn. This reel is so unique, you may not even recognize it as a fly reel. I had a chance to fish the stinger reel with Jeff on his home river on the Truckee. The biggest thing that I remember is the weight. The weight really stuck out because you can't even barely tell there's a reel. It's essentially kind of like you're holding a rod all day long. I mean, it's that light. And uh, and when you're Euro nymphing, that is a key. And the other big thing I remember from that day was catching uh, a fish on my first cast. Pretty cool to be down in that part of the country and and have some great success with Jeff. Maverick keeps things simple by offering a Euronymph product line with essentials you'll need from rod, reel, fly line, and leader system. Euronymphing doesn't have to be complicated, so let Maverick Fly Fishing get you started right now. You can learn more by checking out Maverick's YouTube channel for some tips and tutorials. And you can also head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash maverick to check out the good stuff they have going. That's Maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash Maverick to support this podcast and take a look at one of the most unique and efficient Euronymphing setups on the market. Okay, back to the show. How do you find the great salmon when you got a bunch of these spawners? It's early October, mid-October. Is it just the run type you're targeting? Yeah. Um, so for an example, we can fish lower river. That helps. The upper river where a lot of them are spawning. We can, instead of fishing, you know, we'll stay away from the, the gravel, the spawning habitat. We'll fish just off it. We'll fish more of the travel corridors and like that, or the slots and try to, and So if we stay lower river, we stay in more of the corridors. It helps us stay out of them. You're going to be bumping into some, to some rough fish, but that ups your odds. And one of the more wildest things that you can happen is that sometimes I'll go and hang out around the spawning fish if I know there's fish moving. Because you got all these hens spread out along these channels in the gravel areas with these, these new fish you got to travel. And you have all these tiny males that have got all this territory. 
and then you get a pulse of new fish that come up and want to talk about a big time bar fight. <laughs> then you start swinging to the middle of all that chaos. Yeah, that's about as close to a gimme as you can get in the fishing world. Oh, Roy. So you'll throw your fly in this crazy mass and then the aggressive one will hit it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can you see some new fish come in. They hit all these tending males. They all freaked out. They're trying to chase these newbies off. There's a lot of aggression going on. You put about a size four woolly bugger and just let it slowly swing through there. Somebody's going to grab it. Yeah, right. And what usually be a fish that's not spawning, it's more of the other fish that are kind of still prime time? Probably 50-50. Okay, so you might get, and you'll, will you know when you hook a fish, it's a good take, but will you know right away whether that fish has kind of a, been spawning? Um, Yeah, you will. You'll tell about your leg a little bit. And the nice thing about that is you put the screws to them, you get them in quick, or if they're really, we just kind of hang on and pull them on because we'll just tie on another fly really quick, a.k.a. why we really buggers. Gotcha. Do you ever get these fish, are they ever jumping out of the water on the hook when they're hooked in? Once in a while, we'll get a properly hooked fish that'll jump a little bit. Most of the time you see them flipping around, they've been fouled. And what we do is it happens. Um, They're big fish. They're piled in there. There's a lot of fish in a tight spot. It happens. When we get a foul hook, we just kind of point the rod at it and slowly pull. Half the time we get a fly back, the other half. Yeah, break it off. Yeah, it often just get on to the next one. Don't even mess around. No, just break it off and let yeah. the next person who catches it take the fly. Grab your fly. <laughs> yep, yep. They can have the fly. You know, it's, like I said, I, I got a Norvice. I can put, I can do some pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. For swinging, do you have any special flies you like to use? Or are, they, are you using like egg sucking leech? Does that work better or more of the intruder stuff? Or right, right. At that time of year, initially the intruder stuff works pretty good, but once we get into um, when steelhead start coming in and they're spawning going on, the problem with steelhead and swinging in October when the salmon are spawning is I never seen fish get locked into food source as much as I do eggs. So I've been in a spot there. Where I remember um, fishing around a bunch of spawning fish and you can just see steelhead everywhere. And the problem was I kept catching salmon. I wanted to target the steelhead. So we tried swinging and we could just, we could literally swing until the die came off the flies. So as we went to a fly, we could start picking, we would eventually pick on that steelhead if the salmon gave the drift a chance. So what we have started to do is swinging with a lot of egg-sucking leeches that time of year. That's the upper odds with the steelhead. And the other thing we'll do, too, is we'll swing a little higher in the column, the water column, and try to pull the steelhead up above the um, salmon to get the, um, to take it. We had some really good success doing that. All right. Gotcha. So you're swinging through, yeah, you're just basically not getting it on the bottom like the salmon are wanting it. You're just staying above them. Right, right. We'll just try to, we'll do a little bit of depth control and swing a little higher in the water column. So we're going over the tops of the salmon and try to pull the steelhead up. Hmm. How do you know when you're at the right, say, higher in the water column? Do you just go lighter line or are there other ways to know when you're above the salmon? We can go lighter tips, depending on how the fish are behaving. Um, we can add a little bit more drag into the line, speed our swing up, or we... Downstream mend. Right. There's a lot of little line handling tricks we can do, or we can play with the with the tips. But when we got extreme situations where we're fishing over an air, I call them the egg McMuffin bars, <laughs> where you got a lot of salmon that are just spraying eggs everywhere, and the steel to come up, they'll just stall and they'll just partake. And if I want to try to stay out of a lot of the salmon, then we just kind of got to play with our depth until we know we're not bumping into the salmon and we're above them. And then we'll start working that and see if we can't pull a steelhead up through there. There you go. Man, this yeah. is, sound, you're making it sound like there's just, uh, fish are just stuffed in everywhere. You got browns. They can't be, yeah, they can't be, you know, it's, um, it's this, we do this a lot on the salmon river where we get, there's an awful lot of fish, that, a lot of salmon come up in there. Tell us again, let's go on the salmon. Where does the salmon flow into, talk about that, where it's coming from, where it's going. All right. The watershed for the salmon river is the Tug Hill Plateau. So up north. Right. It's the east end of Lake Ontario. So that gets a lot of, no less does it get a lot of lake effect and snow. It also gets a lot of lake effect and rain. And it's a huge watershed and it comes down and pours into the east end of Lake Ontario. And it's kind of the showcase river for New York State for the salmon run. One is the hatchery there that produces all the salmon is there. But more importantly, there's about 16 miles of river there, and out of that 60 miles, there's an, a very, very high percentage of that is excellent spawning habitat. They've done some research. So the, the numbers I'm going to give you here is actually been the result of some natural reproduction research that the University of Syracuse did for a while. Now the state does, with, working with the, with the federal government, 
um, Federal Fish and Wildlife Service that we estimate on an average year that river is producing 20 million young and year wild salmon. Wow. 20 million. Wow. There's no hatchery. Wild. But the hatchery's there. Yes. Plus, so we figured that 60% of our run is wild. Man, that's amazing. And okay, so basically you got a lot of wild fish, you got a lot of hatchery fish. That's kind of explaining it. What What's the closest town to the lake there where the salmon's in? That'd be Pulaski. Oh yeah, yeah, Pulaski, I gotcha. Yeah, and the reason why we know that it's about 65% of that run is um, they did a three-year study where every hatchery salmon that went into Lake Ontario from New York State had a fin clip. And they ran that for three years. And it was, I wish they continued to do it because it was pretty interesting on my part because you could... We'd be like all of our early September salmon are mid, almost until late September is grossly, probably 90% wild. Then all of a sudden, right around late September, early October, we'll see all of our hatchery fish show up. Oh, wow. So that's cool. So yeah, earlier you're getting a lot more wild fish too. Yeah. And then a lot of our late fish are wild too. Oh, and late fish. Okay. Yeah. It seems to be. And I don't know if it's anecdotal or... I just want it to be, I don't know, but it seems like the wild fish bite better for me. I seem to do way better. They just seem to respond to a swing and fly a lot better than the hatchery fish. When the hatchery fish come up, I got to do a little bit more dead drifting or a little bit of a softer drift. Uh, but when the wild fish seem to be moving, they just do really well on the swing. They like that moving fly. Right, right, right. So it seems like earlier would be better if you wanted to get a Chinook salmon, potentially, you know, one of these hotter fish maybe. And probably earlier would be better if you want to do that. Say like, when would be the prime time? If you want to really hit, just forget about hatchery, just you really want to hit some of those hot wild fish, when would that be? Well, I tell everybody the same thing. The first two weeks of September is my time. I'm fishing for a fish or two and it's all on the swing. They're all wild fish. And then about mid-September, the flows, the trickles are starting to pick up a pace. And, but there's still wild fish. At that point, the, the, the traffic on the river is picking up a little bit too. But yeah, that's probably your best time. It's about mid, mid-September. Mid-September, okay. Yeah, mid to late September. Yeah, we've had really great time swinging flies for them. It's not to say that we've done very well in October. Yeah, it sounds like it's, there's a good period where you can catch them. And then browns, remind us again, when, is the, when would be a good time for browns? Right, browns are a um, November fish. However, the last couple of years... We've picked them up, picked up uh, an odd, you know, bon- I call them bonus fish, an odd brown trout, probably in early to mid-October when I'm fishing on the Salmon River. Oh, gotcha. Bump into some, so mid-October into November. But yeah, maybe November, early November would be fine. And that'd be after the salmon are gone or pretty much done. Right, correct. So what happens is I leave the Salmon River around Halloween. I go to Western New York to focus on a brown trout. And one of my guys has been working with me for years. He stays on the Salmon River and kind of head guides the Salmon River operation for me. So we kind of divide and conquer. That's right. I saw, what's his name? Rick Smith. Yeah, Rick Smith. Yep, Rick. Yep. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so Rick hangs out. So basically Halloween, you're heading west towards uh, kind of uh, Rochester, right? Back towards your yep. home down. And then he's staying up on Pulaski on the Salmon. Yeah, he's a local boy. Yeah. How far is that? What is that, a couple hours? Or what's the drive? Yeah, it's two hours from here. And I keep a place up there. I've been. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have pretty close um, connections up there. I have a cousin that still lives in Pulaski and aunt and uncle that live up there. And... Cool. Man, it's such, again, I just look around and I'm like, wow, you got this whole thing going on that you're west, north, east side. <laughs> and then you keep going. If you keep going towards Niagara Falls and swing around, you get up into Toronto. What, what's Toronto? Is that like a five, six hour drive? No, nah, we can be in Toronto two hours from the house. Oh, wow. Two hours. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. you go. So you're right there in Toronto. And I know. Shout out to Nicole. Um, she was on one of our recent trips and she's from that area and she was talking about how fired up. She just started steelhead fishing, right? And But she, it, it's one of those things where I see why she's loving it because Ontario, Lake Ontario is pretty amazing. I mean, have you fished some of the other Great Lakes? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Erie's right there. Erie's literally like just, I mean, you could hit that easy, but it's a different state, right? Or no, I guess there is a little New York part of Erie. No, no, we got we got a whole bunch of um, chunk of Erie right in New York State, too. I just, uh, you know, choose to focus more where I do just to make it easier on myself. I kind of laugh because um, I tell, I warn all my newbies when they go in to do the steelhead thing, I said, be careful, this is worse than crack. Yeah, it is. <laughs> this can get under your skin, you could end up looking like me. <laughs> I know. I know it is. It is definitely. It's one of those species and any of those ones that are, it seemed like the ones that are harder to catch. Well, you still, it could be easy to catch. That's the interesting thing because you guys are right. You hit it right. Yeah. They can be easier, but 
but for the most part, they're a challenging fish to catch. And so that even makes it more intense, more addictive. And what's fun here in the Great Lakes with the steelhead is you can use multiple techniques. So if you're a trout fisherman and you, you got niffing skills, you can take that, go on to the, onto the tributaries and use that technique and be successful. You're a wet fly fisherman. It's an easy adjustment. You can go on there and you can make those adjustments and you can be successful. So there's a lot of different ways you can catch them. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, we were down uh, down in kind of closer to uh, like Cleveland in that area. And I, we were fishing there and I hooked a fish, fishing for steelhead. This is in early December. Yep. And it took it, it kind of bumped it. You know, I had some tips and, and hooked it and landed. It was a little brown trout or a, a nice, nice, you know, it was like over 20 inches. Yep. And it was just a cool, it was kind of surprising. Do you guys get, I mean, when December is that, are you surprised ever catching brown trout or is that during that period? Is that something pretty common? So in the Western um, tribs, it's part of our daily catch. Yeah, that's just normal. Um, on the Salmon River, it's still a bonus fish, but it's not uncommon. Now we're still seeing them. You know, it's funny. They'll stock um, brown trout in the Western or the Eastern end of the lake, and they'll show up in the Western end of the lake. Yeah, well, let's circle back on. So we've kind of gone through. This has been good because we've hit, you know, all the species a little bit, and we've talked about the area a little bit. You know, as, as you look again throughout the year, so we've gone in, September, October, November, December, February. What's it look like? Just take us around the year. So as after May, you're starting to get those hot steelhead. What's going on for you? Are you still guiding throughout like May through the summer? Yes, yes. Let's basically let's get into spring here. Yeah, let's start in spring. Right, right. We got the spring, what I call the spring steelhead run. I call it spring campaign. But anyways, we'll be coming out of winter and we get into um, April and May. I'd say late March, April, May. And that's prime time for steelhead. So all these steelhead that haven't entered the river during the winter are going to feel that, you know, okay, it's time to spawn. They'll feel those warm water discharges from the rivers and the creeks, and they roar up and they do their spawning thing. So then we have the spring spawn cycle, and that runs from basically late March through April. I'll start seeing, uh, it'll peak in Western Europe before it does on the Salmon River. Because generally the Salmon River's got snow melt in the end of March and April. It's very high and it's just liquid ice where I've got 45 degree water temperatures in the West End. And we'll run that cycle. Then when that collapses, I go to the Salmon River about mid-April. Now the water temperatures are starting to hit the 40 degree mark or rising. Understand that's when the fish start getting act, real active is at 40. Even though the river could be still just borderline, I mean, dangerously high. Raging. It's, um, we'll start fishing that and generally that will wind down about second week of May. So once we get to the, the spawn cycle, usually the end of April, um, we start really focusing and really aggressively chasing the drop back steelhead on a swinging fly. And these fish are, they're eating. And, um, it's kind of funny. I'll know when the drop back fishing about collapses because we'll be catching a lot of like chromed up females. They'll be in really decent shape. They'll have a little bit of wear and tear from spawning, but other than that, they're great. Yeah, they're down in their body weight, but they're strong. And we'll be catching those things. And all of a sudden, we'll start catching some of these very tired, weak males. And they finally realize the party's over and they're leaving and they're starting to drop and they're starting to leave and they're starting to feed. And at that point, we usually back off. And we'll go and hit the trout streams. And, you know, we're starting to look at potentially the salt caddis hatches on the trout streams, sulfur hatches. And, um, of course, then we're also starting to focus on um, northern pike. Oh, right. That was the other one we haven't talked about, right? So you're, you've been getting in pike. Yeah, so we start chasing northern pike, and that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And you're chasing those? Where are you chasing those guys? We're chasing those north of the Salmon River. So in the, like, these are in, in the lake or in the rivers or? Um, you go north of the Salmon River, there's a lot of um, federal and state-owned wetlands. Oh, wow. That have a lot of um, oh, marsh and then open water ponds, like almost like small lakes. And what's nice about these things, they're, they're restricted to like a 10-horse um, motor. So we, use our, we just use our drift boats and roll around in there. Oh, wow. So these are connected to Lake Ontario. Yeah, there's access to the lake. Yeah, I see. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking. This is, might not even be the same area, but there's places like... Henderson Bay up north, right out of Dexter, there's these little bays. Yep, yep, and even even south of that, there's some little bays and stuff like that. Gotcha. Cool. So wow. So these pike are, I mean, they're spread throughout, but they're coming in here just warmer waters and all that stuff. They just live there. Oh, they live there. Yeah, they live there, and it's kind of interesting. Is that some of these areas there is 
there's an awful lot of pike. I mean, good luck trying to find a bluegill. You know, we've there's one one little piece of water that's we have a lot of fun fishing that they're not big. I mean, we're talking about the average pike being around 26 inches, but it's not unusual for us to get in the morning of fishing from first light until like noon to have six to 10 on. Oh, wow. Six to 10 on. Yeah. 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 You know, and also you pull up that 26 inch pike and look at it and something way bigger is bitted in the tail. Jeez. A lot of these things that got bite scars on them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, I tell a lot of people, if you're going to go musky fishing, this is a great place to go and fine tune your skills. Cause you don't want to screw up a hook set on a muskie. You go setting it like you are, you're midge fishing in a spring creek on a muskie. So, you know, here's a good chance because you can screw up a few hook sets and still get and still go back. And usually we'll see a really good surface bite, good popper bite kind of come in in early to mid June. And then that'll carry us right into the middle of summer, depending on the weeds. Things can get weedy, but we've had some really good. I mean, last year I was kind of out of commission, but um, my guys had a really, you know, killing me i was laid up and my guys were um having this amazing um surface bite nice so between that and that's june i mean between the pike and everything we talked about today it doesn't leave a heck of a lot of time for the the dry fly hatches do you still you still get a period there in july august where you're doing that oh yeah yeah we we uh, may late may june early um july we'll still get a lot of i'll be bouncing around between that and the trout streams and so by the time late July, August comes, yeah, we're usually, okay, it's time to just start tie flies and get ready for the, for what's coming. Right. What's Yeah, you're just preparing for that. What is it when you look around New York, and I know you're kind of in the western part there, but as you look around the rest of New York, do you, you know, what else are you missing? Or have you hit a lot of the other stuff around New York and say the east side, north, south, all that stuff? Um, generally, that's where we're staying. Um, I don't do, I do a little bit down in the Catskills once in a while. But generally not, um, I usually like to, you know, when you get down to the tributary season, I like to kind of find a lot of quiet water. So I'll, I'll stay in some of the small little freestone um, trout streams and the spring creeks and, and like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and rising again, what, what would be one town that puts the Catskills? What would be a town close to this Catskills area? That'll be Roscoe's known for the Catskills. Roscoe's. Okay. Yeah. Beaverkill goes right through that. And that's kind of like part of that whole, um fly fishing genre thing that it'll be roscoe roscoe new york yep gotcha yeah okay yeah and it's just right in the middle pretty much yeah pretty smacked well no not, i mean not middle it's kind of south it's a little south but yeah it's interesting it's pretty it seems like it, it is fairly diverse is that how you would see new york it is diverse i mean we're fortunate to have you know lake ontario to supply the tributary fishing because that gives us a year-round fisheries and then we also got we were able to come up with a a very nice selection of various trout streams. You know, they're not as exciting as you might find like the, the Bighorn or the Madison, but we have very good trout fishing. And our biggest problem with our, our trout fishing is, is, you know, it's heat of summer. So that's, that's probably our biggest issue. But for May and June, we, um, we can have some very good, some very good hatches, great hatches, depending on the water you're in. And where I am now, just south of home base you know in one of my freestones we got an amazing trico hatch oh nice yeah a lot of creeks will have trikes but for some reason we have great trikes and the fish eat them there you go god well i think what we're gonna have to do is maybe uh maybe check back in with you because uh you know there's a lot more here to new york but i mean it feels like we we touched on a little bit about what you do here you also have a youtube channel do you want to give us a little heads up on what people can expect if they take a look at your, your youtube channel out there yeah, the YouTube channel is Lost Rivers Fishings and JPEC Guides. So that's how you can find it. And we got from just fish reports off the tribs. That's very popular, so I end up doing a lot of that. Um, we got some fly tying on it. We have some gear tips on it, like how I set up a spay rod. Probably my most popular little video I got up there is how to fix your waders. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so I got that stuff. And then we got a lot of just us out fishing and being us. So if you want to know who we are, what we're about. You just go to the YouTube channel, look onto the fishing videos and just watch us be the goofballs we are on the water. Gotcha. So you got some on the water stuff. Oh yeah. We got a lot of on the water stuff, us fishing and catching fish, you know, um, trout fishing, pike fishing, fishing the tribs. So you can see the fish that we catch. You can see how we fish for them. We talk about what we're doing. So we always try to throw in a little bit of fishing tips and, you know, some, and other stuff and get a view of the rivers and, you know, 
that you'd see us out on the water doing. I tell everybody, we're not actors. We just can't act. So we just decide to heck with it. We're just going to be ourselves. That's usually the best <laughs> advice. Yeah. Even if, yeah, yourself is usually the best way to go because then, yeah, unless you're a pro actor or whatever, yeah, it doesn't work, but you can't fake it. You can't fake it till you make it. Right. Everybody says show the bloopers. I mean, you kidding me? We use that stuff. It's too good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, that is the key. Perfect. Well, well, and give us the heads up. So the waiter, we'll take a look at that. We'll put a link to, in the show notes to that waiter video. But what is the quick, is there a quick little summary of what that is? How are you fixing these? Is this like a seam leak or a major hole? What's that? How do you do it? Um, basically, in that thing, um, we um, use a lot of Gore-Tex waiters. And the easiest way to do that is use the old alcohol trick. And in that, everybody says spray the alcohol. What I learned is you don't spray it, you flood the area. So it's the easiest way to fix your, your breathables is you'll notice on your, your pants where there's a wet spot. Well, turn the waiters inside out, go to the corresponding spot on, on the wet spot on your pants to the waiters, flood that with alcohol, and just start moving that little puddle of alcohol around. All of a sudden, that alcohol will hit the broken ends of your Gore-Tex and turn it black. Wow. And um, sometimes I'll take a little Sharpie mark, and a lot of times it'll just stay black, and I'll just dry that off. The alcohol just prepped here. It's nice and clean. Then put a tiny little dab of seal over it, and it's fixed. That's it. Yeah. So it shows you, it literally shows you, it turns black and shows you where the, and would that be the same, like if it was a seam or is this more like pinhole stuff? Well, that's pinhole stuff. That, yeah. You know, we wear a lot of Sims waiters and their seams are really good. Usually if you got along the seams cause you stuck something through the seam. Yeah. 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 Sims are pretty tough, right? It's usually something you did. Yeah. 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 Did to them. Cool. Well, that's, that's an amazing tip. We'll definitely, like I said, get a link out to your video there and, um, well, let's take it out of here. We have the uh, the two-minute drill. I always uh, put a test on to see if we can wrap it out of here pretty quick. So you ready for this? All right. Far away. All right. These are going to be easy. You'll be able to – nothing big here. It'll be kind of rehashing a little bit about what we've already talked about today. But So the first one, I guess uh, – well, I will take you a random one here. So uh, are you more listening to music while you're on the road or podcasts? What, what are you doing out there? Uh, usually for me it's music, but I've been doing more podcasts these days. Okay. Do you want to yep. give us either a podcast episode or a show you've listened to or a, a song or a music or a band that you like? Um, it depends. If I've been fishing really hard and it's a long day and I got a long drive on the way home, I just let Metallica rage. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Let's go with Metallica. Love that. That with a lot of coffee. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. I love it. Yeah, I love Metallica. We'll put a video to Metallica in the show notes as well. So we talked rods a little bit. We talked two-handed, single-handed. It sounds like you could cover whatever anybody wants to do, but you have one rod for New York to pick throughout the year. Only one, one rod, one length weight. What is it? If it's going to be, oh God, if it's in the tribs, a 11 foot seven weight switch. Yeah. Seven weight yep. switch. Yeah. Yep. And is the switch, when you say 11 foot seven weight switch, is it just, the switch basically means you can cast single handed easy. And if it's not a switch, you can't. Right. Right. Basically with a switch rod, I set it up with a schedule system. I set it up with a running line so I can change to a Scandi. I call it the multi-tool. You can adjust tips, lines, whatever you need to on the go. It's long enough. You can swing. You can nymph. You can cast, bay cast. You can do whatever the, whatever you need to do at that moment. Yep. 11 foot 7 weight. That's it. That's, that's the one. Yep. It's a little light for salmon, but so what? You hang out until they get tired. What's your, you want to give a shout out to one of your uh, companies that you use out there for on the rods? Yeah, you know, it's for an example, one of the rod companies I've been using a lot more is Douglaston Outdoors. They got a lot of um, trout rods, one-handed rods that are really, really great. They make probably the nicest saltwater rod I've casted in a long time. There you go. Yeah, I use a 9-foot 10-weight or 9-foot nine 9-weight nine in the pikes things, and we're, we're throwing half chicken, and those things will just chuck it. I also use a 9-foot 3-weight in, in my trout streams, my favorite go-to trout rod. Nice. All right, good. So we got that, and then... And then fly, let's just stay on that. So we're fishing for browns. Is it uh, your one fly? What's the one fly you're going with? Is it an egg pattern or is it a streamer? Um, I like, God, right now it's a white zonker. Size six. White, white zonker. Yep. Yep. I catch a mountain of them. Yeah. Yeah. White zonker. Yeah. White is a good color. Why do you think white? Is that kind of a fleshy thing? In my situation, it matches the forage base you're chewing on right now. Mm, right. It's just the floor. Yeah. A lot of creek chubs and they're light colored thing. That's it. Okay. And give us, we haven't gone into the spay casting much today, but if somebody is out there with you and they're struggling to get the cast, the spay in, what's one tip you might give somebody listening now to help them with their spay? All right. There's generally, they're making two mistakes. They're trying to do everything with their top hand. So I tell them to open up your top hand. 
that forces you to use the bottom hand. And the other thing is, is they're coming from the one-handed rod. This is all one-handed problems. We're used to dropping a rod tip and shooting at a, at a target. With the space, stop your cast high. So loosen up that top hand and stop that, that tip higher, and your cast will start to aerialize a little better. That's it. Perfect. And slow down. <laughs> and slow down. Yeah, slow down. That's it. You know, it's those are tough ones to do, but yep, slow down. and Yeah, because a lot of us are making that transition from one-handed rods to two-handed rods, and you got a lifetime of muscle memory that you're fighting. Yep, that's it. Yep. Perfect. What is one uh, trip that maybe you haven't done yet, but it's on your bucket list you really want to hit up? I'd like to go to British Columbia, up in that watershed there. You know, not as much as to catch a, a saltwater steelhead. I'd like to see the country. See those rivers that I've heard so much about. See the country. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, well, I guess you are a little bit south as far as latitude, but you are still up in the northern part of the country and you're not far from, yeah, Ontario, Quebec, I mean, right? So you got some pretty, probably habitats that are similar to BC, I'd imagine, up north. Do you think any of that area up in Canada, north of you, is similar? Uh, it's much more northern, much more boreal forest. We're, we're hardwoods. Right, right. It is different. Yeah. Perfect. All right, BC. And then, and then what about one person? Do you have, I mean, it sounds like you've built this thing a lot on your own as a youngster, but has there been like a, somebody that's influenced you or mentor, somebody you've followed over the years, helping you with all your, your journey? Probably, the, you know, one person that's probably had the biggest, in, the biggest influence on in everything else, my father-in-law, hmm. um, Carl Coleman. Um, he, he had a fly shop in this area for years. He's part of the old school fly fishing genre. He's, you know, he's in his eighties. Um, he was a big one. Another person that really helped, especially with the spay rods and swing things, would be Mike Kenny. Oh, yeah. You know, a quick little story. Several years ago, I went out with a friend of mine. Um, one thing or another, we didn't end up in his home waters. and ended up in another river that was open. We spent five days with him, probably seven days on the water. Never touched a fish. The most successful fishing trip I was ever on. When I came back with him... And swing flies, line presentations, and everything else in casting has influenced my swing fishing, my steelhead fishing tremendously. Right. That's it. That's the ultimate. I mean, as a guy, you probably know this, right? They, the yeah. fishing's the fishing. You never know what that's going to bring. But, you know, you saying that, I imagine that's probably how you look at your guide trips, right? Oh, yeah. What I learned from, in a way, it was a good thing the fish weren't in the way to distract us. And then at that point, what left was, talking about casting, talking about line setups, talking about presentations, how we cover the river, how we handle each different things, how we make the adjustments, and then taking what he does in his waters, come back and adopt it to my waters. Yeah. And where, what are his waters? Where is he at? He's kind of retired from the guiding these days, but he usually fishes the Skagit. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. He's out west. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Mike Kinney. Yeah. He's a big name out there. Definitely one of the old guys. Yeah, and you know his style of casting helped me because he's an underhand caster, and I've adopted that style of casting because of my tendonitis from my old life and my body. That keeps the stress off of my elbows and my shoulders, and I can cast a two-handed rod all day. Yeah, that's awesome. That is I mean, that's one of the things with the two-handed rod is that that's a huge thing, right? It changes the game from you know a young guy thing to like literally you can do this your whole life, right? The two-handed style. Yeah, I've had guys that's come on to the things and they're about ready to give up tributary fishing because the rods are too heavy and they go up my shoulders and all that. And I'm like, well, don't use your shoulders. Here, let me show you a different technique of casting. Put a two-handed rod. Don't use a one-handed rod. That'll beat you up. Trust me, I know. And I'll change your casting, put a two-handed rod in there, show them how to, some body mechanics and everything else, and they're off and running. They're comfortable. Yeah, it's amazing. You're not looking for the ibuprofen after three, four hours of fishing. No, that's one huge thing. Nice. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Jay, and uh, send everybody out to uh, jpeckguides.com, also lostriversfishing.com. And um, yeah, you know, until we meet again, I think we're definitely going to follow up with you and keep up. We'll probably be heading out to Northeast, you know, later this year. So um, thanks for all your time today and appreciate you uh, shedding some light on New York and, and all the good stuff you have going. That was my pleasure. And give me a shout when you get in the neighborhood. There we go. JPEG, if you want to check out the show notes and uh, check out some of the stuff uh, Jay has going, wetflyswing.com slash 437. 437, you can check out, uh, I'm sure we're going to have a video, and I'm not sure if we got some music, but that would be nice to put some background music. We'll give it a shot. Quick reminder before we get out of here, Stonefly Net custom build-out bonus is going on right now, wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. 
Quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Austin. Austin Doherty. Austin said on email, Hey Dave, been listening to the podcast for about two years now and I am loving it. I'm located on the Canadian reach of the Upper Columbia, Cruck Territory. Shout out to Bruce Cruck uh, with a nice uh, laughing smiley face. Favorite fish to target is uh, UC Red Bands with a spay rod and streamer eating bull trout on single hand. Damn, that sounds great. He says he mixes in a little bit of the Cuddy Dry Fly as well. There we go. Shout out, Austin. Thanks for uh, checking in and letting me know where you're coming from. We've done some episodes up in that upper part of the Columbia. We will definitely be back because that is a really cool part of the world. And if you want to get a shout out, you can check in with me anytime, Dave at wetflyswing.com. And I'd love to put together an episode for you and give you a shout out on this podcast. All right, I'm going to give a quick shout out to the School of Fishing. Uh, if you get a chance, you can check that out right now, the School of Fishing. This is our travel program where we are putting together some of the best trips with some of the great gurus and amazing anglers we've had on this podcast. If you want to check out upcoming trips uh, and see what we have going there, you can head over to schoolofishing.co and, uh, and you can also check in with me anytime to find out. But uh, give some support over there. And, uh, and show the love, and we would love to see you on the water. I hope you are having a great afternoon, a great evening, or a great morning, wherever in the world you are, and I appreciate you for hanging out with us today. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.